Hi, baby doll. Hi, sweetie. Come here. How you doing? So my kids came in. They're on a ski trip. I think she can stay for a little bit. And uh, they left us with the kids, the, the baby, for a few days. <sighs> All right, you guys, talk amongst yourselves. She's going to sit with me for just a little bit. Is that okay, sweetie? You want to stay with me? You want to stay? You guys remember what my name is? Papa Squat. Yeah, it took me a, quite a few months to get that one through. So what do you think, sweetie? Okay, so let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, we're going to look at faith, and then we're going to do a, a few things with this. We're gonna, I, I want to look more than just the, maybe a definition of faith or something like that. I want to look at um, more of the, um, the why. Did you? Hmm. So we're going to look at more of the why of faith tonight, and we'll, and, uh, we'll look at that in, for a little bit, but let's first go through this. We we know that we know these first few verses right here, right? We know what they say. Um, you, you've heard it at different times. You've heard it in different ways, different um, uh, translations and things like that. But to really look at, we're gonna, we're going to dig a little deep here because we're going to look at this kind of on a personal level, what this means to us personally and how this works personally. Okay, so faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. Yeah, she's working on that. I know, they're all waving at you. Faith is a confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. That's, that's an amazing little part of the sentence right there, right? It gives us assurance of things that we cannot see, okay? Let, let me give you an example. I was going to mention this. I thought I'd mention it after this sentence, all right? So uh, you guys know Pastor Shelby had surgery a few weeks ago on her knee. She, she uh, busted her kneecap, like, I think, eight different pieces. So they went in there, put all these uh, screws and things in it, put it back together. So then um, uh, she had to go back into surgery this week. And uh, she had to, they had to go in there because someone right, there's some infection things. And now they've told her there's in, the metal parts of the knee that they put in there are causing the infection. And she's going to have to be on an IV for six weeks. A, a stay in IV for six weeks. Well, that can be very discouraging. That can be um, beyond discouraging. But here's, let's read this again. The second part of this. It gives us assurance about things that we cannot see. Now, I've asked this before, and we've talked about this before. How much do we really believe things like prayer? Now, now I know we know, we know the answers. We say them in our head, and I... But I know for me, and, and, I, and you've got to be similar enough in this, you believe in prayer sometimes more than other times. My faith sometimes is off the charts. I can believe God can do anything at any moment. But then it seems like other times I, I pray and I wonder if God's even there kind of thing. And so, so when you kind of put some, some, uh, some questions, some, some balance into this, the, the question that you ask yourself is, okay, what do I really believe about faith? What do I really believe about prayer? What do I really believe about God? Does God do stuff or does he not? And guys, this is where the question is, is how you believe that or whether you believe that. Nikki, can you do me a favor? Can you hand me that? Please. And um, pay attention through the evening in case she throws it on the floor again. Okay. She's going to be in her all service. So that, that we know that, that confidence, that we, have a, that we have a confidence, that we know, and, and, and I don't know how to verbalize this, but I think we get it, that we know in our mind and our spirit, we know on deeper levels about things that we cannot see. Now, this is one of the things in talking with people from all different places around the planet, any kind of religious mentality, any kind of thing like that. We, we all, human beings, have, a, have an, intuit, an intuitive spiritual desire. A hunt for God, a desire for God. We'll see. She'll be all right for a second. <laughs> no, this isn't 
This isn't about anybody in this room right now, but me. Are you going to? Oh, you can take her. Save me. So you're not going to get the toy. Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay, bye, sweetie. I tried to let you have the greatest time of your life, but no. So it gives us assurance about things that we cannot see. Bye, sweetie. Was anybody paying attention to me? No. That's okay. It's perfectly fine. Okay, faith is a confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. Now, you guys understand this word hope is not like a, we really would like it to, but we don't think it's going to. That's not what this hope means. This is the true definition of hope, which we have a confidence that it is going to. That's what this hope means. It's the same. We have a, we have a, a theology, a lot of different um, uh, <clears throat> denominations have this very similar theology. Um, our fellowship has a, a theology called the Blessed Hope, that we have a confidence that Jesus is coming back to get us. It's not a we, we don't think it could, but hopefully it might kind of thinking, you know, pie in the sky, wishful. All that. It's not that kind of thing. It's a confidence down deep in our spirit that we know Jesus is coming back, that that's, that that's a confidence. That's what that hope means, and that our life is built upon that. That's, that's why it uses the term hope, Okay. <clears throat> so it gives us assurance about things we can't see. So this is something, and even, even uh, texting back and forth with Pastor Shelby today, this is very discouraging for her, extremely discouraging. She was wanting to lead worship Sunday. She would do it with her brace on, but she thought she could get here and, and do this and be part of this. But now they're saying she has to not have an IV hanging off of her for six weeks. That, that, that could get you down, especially when you've already spent weeks sitting on your rear. Not being able to move, not being able to do stuff, not binge look. The six weeks right now, like today. She, she had the surgery yesterday, Monday. And uh, so when she went to Dr. Day, she, he told her that she had to have the, the um, IV drip. But, so this is, this is where we come to with faith. Do we really believe that God can do something? Now let's use Pastor Shelby as an example. And many of us here have similar uh, things that we could... Um, Put into these categories, needs that we have, things we really need God to do, physical needs. I was thinking about this um, uh, with Patrick. Patrick has, has, um, <clears throat> has what do you call it when it's ongoing all the time? Chronic headaches, uh, migraines, really bad headaches all the time. And he's, done, he's done all kinds of things. Every, every time I show up, he's got something else. He's got a, a ring in his ear. He's got something through, you know, bone through his nose. I don't know. It's just stuff that's going on trying to say, I'm trying to get rid of these headaches. Uh, he's been to doctors, he's been all kinds of things, and nobody can figure out what the deal is. Well, at some point, we do know that, I mean, this, this is the way I've been saying it for myself, but I'm, but I'm positing it toward you. What do you think about this? I really, I know that God knows exactly why he's having those headaches. Not maybe, here's an idea, but exactly. Same, same thing with Shelby. God made her. So, so when the doctor says, well, you're going to have to be on IV for six weeks. Do we believe that prayer is bigger than that? Not, not, this isn't anything against the doctor. It's not like the doctor got it wrong. or what. doctor's right. We're okay. All that. But don't we believe that God can change uh, the physicalness of us, the physical laws of nature? He can change things. He can do things differently than they are. The, 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 Bible, that's what, the Bible is story after story after story of God doing things in people's lives and changing circumstances, changing details, changing stuff, uh, making sure that, that, um, that he declare, we, we declare him bigger than everything, and then he shows that back to us, that he is bigger than everything. Was that one of you? Somebody over there? Or? Oh, okay. I thought somebody died there for a second. <clears throat> through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, through their faith, they earned a good reputation. You know, that's a good starting point, specifically today. To me, if you would have said that to me 30, 40 years ago, I wouldn't have totally understood the, the, the significance of that statement. Through faith, uh, people in days of old earned a good reputation. What about right now, today? Through faith, can we earn a good reputation through faith? The answer is still yes, but as I've been talking over the last couple months, we're really in a much uh, bigger uphill battle right now in society in really getting the understanding of who Jesus is and, and his laws and his morality um, across the nation. It's, it, we're, losing, we're losing that battle fast. We've been sliding backwards for a long time, and we're losing it really fast right now, that God really is a holy God. He's got a plan. He's a holy, 
Uh, his, his plan is holy. His ways are holy. And, and for us to say, my faith can actually earn a good reputation. My faith can make sure that people around me know that Jesus is the king. Just because I have faith in him. I, I, I've, I've said this a, oh, dozens of different ways over the years, but there's a little things. You could probably put 50 little things that you do on a regular, consistent basis. If you're really following the Lord, you're serving Jesus, you can put many things, uh, stack them up, and they make a big uh, statement of life existence. That you're saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe my, my next door neighbor is one of the. Um, I, I went to my next door neighbor and asked him if he had come to our, our men's rally a few months ago. And, um, and he mentioned him, his wife, him and his wife both were standing there, and they said, You're always gone. You're always doing church stuff. They know what I'm doing, they know I'm at church, they know I'm in church because I don't do anything else. Um, church stuff and eat out. That's all I do. And, uh, and they were saying, your church is always doing something. Always doing, you know, and they, but they were saying it in a positive way. It wasn't like, oh, man, I would hate to go to your church. Uh, it, it was, uh, it was, there was something about it. You, you can take a lot of little things in your life, just little things that you can do and that you can be and that you can say. That when you have a moment where, regardless of the, the situation itself, but either there's something good happening from neighbors or negative happening from neighbors, you can declare Jesus even just in your life. And just how you talk to them or treat them or something else, you, you can declare. Um, I was thinking about this today. We were driving to the airport to get Eloise. And, um, and uh, we, drove, we were behind this guy who was behind a lady at the red light. And the light turned green. I mean, instantly turned green. He just laid on his horn. I guess he was late to work or something. This was in Parker. And uh, just laid on his horn. And she just starts pulling away the same as everybody else. She wasn't, like, taking her time or anything. She just starts pulling away. And he, starts, he leans out the window and starts screaming. He's right in front of us. Starts screaming at her, flipping her off, doing all this other kind of stuff. And, and I thought to myself, does that make you feel big to, to show one of your fingers or the other ones? I've never understood. I've never really seen the significance of the middle finger. But, you know, it's just a finger. But either way, you know, I want him to go, mm, you know, that's my bad finger. I don't know. So I was sitting there watching him doing all this, and I was kind of getting entertained by this. And then all of a sudden I realized... She's slowing down. She's doing this on purpose. And so I, I pulled out really quick and got up beside her. There's three lanes. And as soon as I started to pass him, he pulls over behind me. And I slowed down the same speed she was. I looked over her and she just was laughing like this. <laughs> now, was that the right thing to do? I don't think so. But <clears throat> here's my point. Is, you know, you can actually speak a lot just with a minute or two. This guy spoke a lot to me about who he was, to the point where it started to irritate me. I thought, and, and I could tell the lady in the car in front was older, and I'm thinking, you, you jerk, what, how, what, does this make you feel big? Does this make you somehow feel like conqueror of the world, that you can flip off an old lady? How does it, well, all right, you know. Then I, and then I caught myself getting a little irritated to the point where I'm thinking, you know, if we pull up to the next red light, I could walk up there and pull him out of his car, you know, and give him a good whooping, and, you know, he needs one. And then I realized, okay, that's not, you understand what I'm saying? Now, then it would begin to display something else than what Jesus wants me to be displaying, right? So let's just stop the story there, because I don't want to assess what I actually did, whether it was uh, healthy or not healthy. But thinking about the fact, the fact that our faith can establish a reputation, that your faith can establish a reputation at work, not necessarily big things. When it comes time to speak about Jesus, the, the, the validity of that is going to be based upon the life that you've been living. The, the, whether they uh, uh, want to listen to you or don't want to listen to you is greatly going to be determined by the life that you've been living. It's not necessarily the words. The words have impact when you begin to speak them, but it's about the life. Just, just take your neighborhood, the three or four people around you. Do they see you as a nice person, not a nice person? person that cares, not per, a person that doesn't care? person that is, um, this is a big one, this may not seem big, but I think, I think there, it plays into it. Do they see you as a messy person or a tidy person? I think that plays into it. All these little things, you stack 50 of those little things up when you are talking to your neighbor and the, and, and the subject of Jesus comes up, which hopefully you can get it there someday, somewhere in the process, do they care what you have to say? That's going to be built upon what your faith really is. Not what you've been saying, but what your faith really is, where your heart is. What your faith, what, what do you really believe? 
Because faith is what? Faith is a, is a belief in God. That's where faith starts. It's not a belief that he can do something. That comes later. You're, you're, the, the first foundation of faith is do you believe God? Do you believe in him? And then the next one is do you believe him? And then the third one is do you believe he can do things? Right? Do you believe in him? Do you believe him? And then you believe he can do things. That's the way I look at faith and the progression of faith. But, but do you believe in him? That's going to be displayed in your life. That's going to be displayed. People are going to see it. It's going to know it. They're going to know. There's something different about you. Um, if everybody at work's a jerk and you're not, which you shouldn't be as a Christian, you shouldn't be, they're going to start picking up on that. They're going to start noticing that. Why are you different in this crazy madhouse? Right? Those kind of things. Okay. So, <clears throat> verse 3. By faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. You, you see where faith starts. Faith starts with God being the creator of everything. He is God over everything, right? That, we now, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. That, that's a faith thing. That's why, I pick on, that's why I pick on evolution and stuff like that on a regular basis. Because first, it is the, it is the most stupid and name thing anybody's ever come up with. It's, you can't prove it scientifically, everything. A, a common sense thinker should throw evolution out, Okay. I just saw a great article a couple weeks ago about 1,000 scientists and, and, and reputable PhD scientists and reputable institutions around the country have come out and said evolution is a crock. There's nothing factual about it. And everybody has known it's in the science world forever. And 1,000 different scientists have come out and said that now. Well, it's about time. We've all known it, okay? Common sense says don't believe in evolution, but here's the big one is my understanding of who God is says I can't believe in evolution. Because if I believe that God created him, created Adam and Eve, that's why when people say, which came first, the chicken or the egg? We know the answer to that. What came first? The chicken. God didn't create eggs. Right? He created chickens. And then later, a chicken said, hey, I think I'd like to have another chicken. And the male chicken said, oh, that's a weird way to do that. And then he ate, she had an egg. So that's where eggs came from. The same concept with Adam and Eve. God didn't create Babies. He created people, Adam, and then he created Eve out of Adam. This is why my son called me the other day and he said, Dad, I've been getting this question. He's a children's pastor. He said, I've been getting questions about this. He said, I think I know the answer, but he's going to run it by you. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? As a children's pastor, this is a big one, right? Because kids need to know this stuff, right? Do you know the answer to that? Think about it for a second. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? No. They didn't. You say, well, maybe God just gave them one. I guess maybe, but does it make sense until you have a baby? So there's no way Adam had one. That's profound. Okay. So we know that, 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 that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. God created everything out of nothing. There was nothing. And then there was something. And it was completed. It wasn't starting at some microbial soup kind of mentality and we grew to now. That's not, he, there was nothing and then there was animals and there was people and there was trees and plants and mountains and oceans and all this. And we see every one of these described and laid out uh, in scripture, how they happen, when they happen, all that kind of stuff. There was nothing and then there was something and it was completed in seven days, okay? Now, now that's, a, that's a big one. And I'm also, and I'm not trying to convince you of this part. To everything I've said up to now, I, I, I would love to try to convince you if you're not convinced of that because it's vital. But I also believe the next step, and to me this also makes sense, is I believe when Jesus said he, when God said he created creation in seven days, I believe it was literally seven days. I don't believe it was 7,000 years or 47 bazillion years. I believe it was seven days. Why? Because it's the same word for day from Genesis to Revelation. It's the exact same word. If it was an epoch or a time or a season, he would have used a different word. It was a day. Boom. He also said he separated the, heavens, the, the, the dark from the night, the day from the morning. He did that in one day. You don't separate the day from the morning if the morning lasts 7,000 years. Then it makes sense. That, that, that language does not make sense, okay? So when people say, wow, you're a literalist. Yeah, isn't that weird? I take it like it says it. To me, if you're anything else, something's wrong. 
You can be those things secondarily, but not primarily. Primarily, you need to be a literalist when it comes to the Bible. Okay. It was by faith that Abel, verse 5, it was by faith that Enoch, in fact, let's read that one. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known to be as a person who pleased God. So that tells us that's why Enoch was taken. By faith, Enoch was taken up. Why did God take him? Because he was a person who pleased God and apparently pleased God at a complete different relational levels that he was directly connected. So now let's put those two together. By faith, because he uh, was a person who pleased God, he was taken up into heaven without dying. Now, we're going to walk down just through a few of these, and we're going to go somewhere else here in Scripture in a second. But here's what I want us to start with. This is the first place we start. This, this faith, this teaching, if you will read down through all of Hebrews, we're not going to do that tonight. If you read down all through, through all of Hebrews 11, you'll learn a lot of different things. If you'll, if you'll slow down as you're reading, and you take each one of them individually. In fact, here's something you can do if you, if you like to do this, and you like to make notes and study stuff, is every time you come to one of these, and so let, me, let me jump down and look at one, okay? It, it was by faith. No, I don't want to do that because we're going to talk about that one. Um, all right, it was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and too old. She believed that God would keep his promise, and so a whole nation came from it. Those two verses right there, uh, three verses, write down who the person was, what was their focus of faith. Because not everybody's focus of faith is the same in this list. This is something that we don't think about when we're reading down through the list. We just go, oh, by faith they did this, faith they did this. But they did different things under different levels of emotion, different levels of belief, different levels of duress. There's a lot of things going on here. And when you write down the details, you begin to understand you can break faith down in different categories for different people under different circumstances. Or, or it's, to me, it's the same faith, but it's a different kind of faith. You think differently with different circumstances presenting you and the way you pray. They're different, okay? For for example, um, you can pray for Pastor Shelby right now for her knee. The way you pray is going to be different than the way somebody else prays about this, and all of us are going to be very different in the way Pastor Shelby prays about this. Different ways we're approaching the same subject. Different ways we're looking at faith. The way we're trying to connect with, with God's Spirit and His Word and, and faith. We're, we're going to see it differently. We're going to process it differently. Right? Sense of urgency can be different for different people. Okay. So, you can write those down. So, let's look at Enoch. Enoch was a person who pleased God, and that faith uh, was why he was taken up to heaven. So, what motivated Enoch's faith? If you asked Enoch, Enoch, do you have faith in God? He would have said yes. Tell us what that means, Enoch. What do you think he would say to us? What's the motivation? <clears throat> God is to Enoch. God is everything. Okay? So, so Paul is pulling this from where it says... He was known as a person who pleased God. So Paul's extrapolating that if he's a person who pleases God, then apparently God is important to him. Correct? Okay? So God is everything to Enoch. What's, a, what's either another way to say that or another little angle to this? How would, how would Enoch describe his faith uh, in God? I, I know God. That's a very, I think that's a very solid way to verbalize it. I know God. That's different, guys. Think about this with me. That is different than I know about God. I know Him. That's a very valid point. Um, so if he knew God, he knew him. He knew Him apparently better than some people because he knew what pleased God in ways that apparently other people didn't, or at least they weren't following through with. He knew him well enough to know what made him happy or what didn't. Think about this. When, when, when we pray around here, when I'm leading us to pray to give our heart to the Lord for, on the weekends for, for salvation, when I say, Lord, um, 
when we're repeat, repeating the prayer, and I say, oh, Lord, for, forgive me of anything. I do not say, forgive me of my sins, which is not a bad thing. I will talk about that. I'll preach about that. I'll, but most of the time when I say that, I say, somebody tell me, how do I say that? Forgive me for anything that I've done that's not pleasing to you. To me, that redefines, in some people's mind, maybe not everybody, but, but in some people's mind, it redefines just the, the uh, status quo mentality of what sin could or could not be. Lord, I don't, I don't want to do something that's not pleasing to you. Because if it's not pleasing to God, it's causing conflict with us somewhere with him. That's, that's a bigger priority. Aiden, did you raise your hand? Say that again. Um, well, yeah, we can unpack that. I would agree with that, but, but I think we got to unpack that a little bit. When you're saying he's not compromising, in what would you put that? Describe some things. Okay, I would get that out of that. The next sentence is, it is impossible to please God without faith. Now, now, this is, now this is a pretty extreme statement. Now we're going farther than just Enoch wanted to please God. Now it says, it's impossible to please God without faith. It doesn't exist. You cannot, be, you cannot please the Lord without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly, uh, sincerely seek him. That's an interesting statement. That he, he says, we must believe God exists. And then part of that, it's, it's not like a caveat. It's like this, the continuation. Although in my brain, it's not a natural continuation. He says that we believe that God exists. And a continuation of God's existence is that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. The fact that he exists means he's going to reward you. So now let's take what, what Aiden said, and let's go from one extreme to the other, okay? Not compromising because uh, God's holiness. I, I, I do agree with the way Aiden is saying this. I think here's this tricky thing about grace. If you know that you can do something today and get away with it, and you're, and you're depending upon this grace mentality, then you can do something that you know is not pleasing to God, but eventually you're going to pray about it, ask God to forgive you, and it's all going to be okay. Right? And every one of us have done that at different levels. Every single one of them. We've we got to be careful if we point at somebody else and say, well, you know, that every one of us have, have used grace to our benefit. Right? But here's the thing. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it says that if you go on sinning willfully, there no longer remains forgiveness. So, for your sins. So, willfulness is the focus of that. It's not forgiveness. You can be forgiven of your sins, but the key is, is when you're sinning willfully, you're stopping that forgiveness from happening. The Lord wants to forgive you, but he's not going to because there's a willful sinning mentality in your heart. Now, what does that mean? Because to me, willful sinning is the opposite of what Enoch is. Right? Enoch was trying to do what pleases God. Willful sinning is trying to please who? Me. When I know I'm doing something wrong and I choose to do it anyway, and we can use something like grace as a, um, as a uh, safety net right? But somewhere along the way, I can understand you make some mistakes, and I get that. Every one of us here can do that. When you make mistakes, you're trying to serve God. You can do the same way what Paul says in, in Romans 6. I try to do right, but every time I do right, I end up doing, I want to do right, I end up doing the very wrong thing. I get that. Paul's heart was right, and he was trying to do the right thing, but he was making mistakes. That's different than what he's talking about in Romans, which is willful sinning. And this is the same thing John is talking about in First and Second, Third John, when he's saying that if you, if you say you love the Lord, but you don't do what he asks, you're a liar. That's strong language. What does James say? Faith without following through with your life, in other words, faith without works, if your life doesn't follow through with your faith, then it's not real faith. Because your life will determine whether it's legitimate or not. And so we can use something like grace as a safety net. But for me, if you're doing that, somewhere there's already a disconnect in your relationship. It's not what you're actually doing that's the issue. It's the fact that, that, well, I'll take care of it later. You know, the idea, well, I can get forgiveness better than I can get permission. That may work in the secular world, but that does not work with God. It's the exact opposite with God. He says, if you're just doing this knowing that you're going to get forgiveness, 
And I'm not going to forgive you because your heart doesn't want truly forgiveness. It's more interested in doing what you want to do. Right? Willful is you pleasing the Lord. That's what Enoch was going after. Our desire should be pleasing the Lord because then it's not about us. And there, there cannot be willful sinning in pleasing the Lord. There can be sinning. You can make mistakes. You can do stupid things. You can, you can have attitudes. You can you know, pull up beside the lady and slow the guy down. You can do things like that completely with innocent mentalities at that moment. And uh, that's not willful sinning, I hope. Pleasing the Lord and willful sinning cannot go together. They can't. Right? So somewhere this pleasing the Lord, when it becomes our priority, that is, according to Hebrews here, that is a definition of faith. That we desire to please the Lord. And, and God says, I'm going to take Enoch. And so Enoch didn't die. You understand that's what it means in the story. If you go back to the Old Testament, read it. Uh, one, he took one step on this earth and he took the next step into eternity. He didn't die. He's one of only two people in Scripture that didn't die. And God just took him because he was so close to the Lord. He was pleasing God. His heart was after the Lord. He wanted to do the things right. Okay? Now, you can go all the way from the extreme of saying, well, I'll use grace as a reason to do whatever I want. But really, you can define that however you want, but you really can't do that. It's really an impossibility to use grace to do whatever you want because somewhere along the line, God's grace is not covering you anymore because you've chosen to do what you want over His grace. That's what Hebrews 10 is saying. So even though you can verbalize it that way, and we all understand that kind of mentality, it's actually an impossibility because somewhere along the line, you've walked away from the Lord. You're no longer with Him. He's no longer forgiving your sins, according to Hebrews 10. Now, what does it take to change that? One thing. Change your heart. True repentance. That's what repentance means. Turn your heart, go the other direction. Stop completely. Not just stop in action, but stop the attitude of the heart that is leading to the action. The Lord will forgive you and you go the other direction. Okay? And then all the way over to the other side, where if you're not careful, you can do this too, that pleasing the Lord is doing all of the things that we're supposed to do as church people. I've fallen into that trap too. Right? I'm going to please the Lord. How are you do that? I'm going to be at church every time the doors are open. Well, that doesn't necessarily please the Lord. What, what, what truly about you pleases Him? Your heart, your, your, heart, your relationship, who you are. He wants you. He wants you way more than anything you can ever do. Now, He wants you doing as a, as a As a heart after God person, as a follower of the Lord, there's going to be things that you're going to do. I, I talked about that maybe a month ago in the service. You can't have a relationship with God and never do anything. Those are, those are um, disingenuous. They don't go together. Right? So be careful because I, I grew up in the mentality, even though we did have a grace and I was... I grew up in the mentality that if you did all the church stuff just right, you went through all the rules, then you were pleasing God. That's not true. Any more than, well, I'll please God, but really what I'm doing is all the things that I want to do. Neither one of those are true. Pleasing God is, Lord, my heart is after you. And that's where Enoch was. He was really trying to make God happy. He was trying to have closeness with God. More than just a mentality of, of uh, doing the things that please God. It's not the same thing as pleasing God. Okay? Any more about that? Aiden, anything else? Okay. okay. All right. So now let's jump down a little bit further. Verse 7. <clears throat> it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. This is not the same feel. It's not the same verbiage. It doesn't have the same context of faith that Enoch had. So what is, if you said to Noah, Noah, do you have faith in God? The answer is yes. Describe that faith to me, Noah. What does it sound like now? What? Obedience. God told me to do something, and it makes no sense whatsoever, right? Different ones of us have been there in our lives. It makes no sense. God just told me to build a boat. What's a boat? I always think about this. This line came up years ago. Uh, Jonathan, my oldest, was about four or five, and Veggie Tales had just started coming out. There was a bunch of stuff 
with this, and one of them was um, uh, David and um, Giant Pickle. I think it is. Somebody is. David and Goliath. Story of David and Goliath. And, and um, one of the guys, or this one maybe, the, I don't remember which story it was, but in one of the Veggie Tales, but I didn't hear it. The first time I ever heard it was out of my son's mouth. I hadn't seen the Veggie Tales. So this made no sense to me whatsoever. He's sitting in the back seat in our van. We're driving somewhere, and he says, Dad, where are we going to eat? And I said, I don't know, Jonathan. Where do you want to eat? And he says, I'm so hungry I could eat a spaceship. What's a spaceship? I'm like, what's he talking about? Well, then, I think it might have been either David or one of the three Hebrew children or something said, I'm so hungry I could eat a spaceship. Well, that's an anachronism, and so they couldn't let that stay. It was a joke. It was an anachronistic joke. And you guys know what an anachronism is? Okay, so. <laughs> Anybody not know? Okay, here's what an anachronism is. You're watching, um, you're watching a story of David and Goliath, and you see a guy with a watch on. That's an anachronism. It's something that doesn't belong in that time and place. Okay, it's out of time and place. Oops. But that happens sometimes in movies, right? You see this old Western going by, and then you see in the background, you see a telephone line. You're like, right? That's an anachronism. Okay, so, um, so I'm so hungry I could eat a spaceship. That's an anachronism. I always think about that when I think about Noah. I always, that, that, thought, that, reminds, that always comes to my mind. God says, no, I want you to build a boat. Noah says, okay, I'll build a boat. What's a boat? You know, he doesn't know what a boat is. Never seen a boat. Well, you're going to need a boat because it's going to flood because it's going to rain. Okay, what's rain? You know, that kind of thing. So, but Noah did it. So the first thing is this is just an obedience thing. God says, Noah, I need you to do something. And Noah says, I'm going to do what God says, even if it makes no sense whatsoever. Anybody ever done something like that? I have. It didn't make sense. I know it didn't make sense. God said, do it. And so I did it. Okay? So, what's other things? If Noah's saying to you, this is what my faith in God uh, is or looks like, or this is how I would describe whatever, what would Noah say? Why was he building the boat? Judgment's coming. Now, the first one is obedience. God said it. But God said why, too? To save, potentially, when he started out, he was trying to do this to save everybody. But nobody was listening. Nobody was paying attention. He's trying to save people. He's trying to do what God said, but nobody's listening. But the biggest thing here is, well, the overriding subject is judgment is coming. Build the boat because it is going to rain. It is going to flood. And anybody that's caught in that is going to die. They're going to drown. The people that don't drown are going to be on the boat. That's a judgment mentality. So what was some of the motivation potentially, uh, what was some of the motivation for Noah building the boat? Fear? Now, I don't think it was like a boogeyman in the night kind of fear. It was, uh, you know, God, God's pretty big and he seems like the real deal. And I'm just going to take him at his word because I don't want to drown. It's that kind of fear. God, you're the king and I'm going to take you at face value. Even though I have no evidence Specifically with flooding and, and rain, I have no evidence that what you've said is going to happen because it never rained before. So there's a fear involved, the fear of the Lord. That he really is big enough to do what he says. And, and you guys heard me have gone down this road at different times. I do believe that the fear of the Lord, part of the definition of the fear of the Lord is a good, um, holy respect for a uh, holy God. Okay. But I also believe that when the Lord uses the word fear, the definition of the word is not holy respect. It's scared. That's what the word fear means. You can tie it together with the, with the context and some of the definition of the word, and you can get holy respect. But you cannot say that is the definition of that. And I've heard preachers do that. Oh, when this word says fear of the Lord, it means respect. No, it doesn't. I've looked it up. You can look it up in a Bible dictionary. It means scared. Right? So, why? Some of you are like translating. He said scared. 
But, th- but this, why, why do I say that? Because this is one of the things that we are losing in our society today, and we're losing it more and more, is just an understanding that God is truly a holy God, and if He says something, it is true. And it's always going to be true. Do you need her? No, 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 we're not looking at you. Nobody look at her right now. No one. No one look at her right now. <laughs> Good job. Thank you, everybody. So, 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 some of the concept of the fear of the Lord is, guys, we have to understand this. God could destroy everything right now, instantly, if he wanted to. And you go to, the, you go to different ways that God displays his anger in the Old Testament. This is before the cross. He institutes this thing called grace, which you be, better be very, coming back to what Aiden said, you be better, better be very respectful of what grace is. Because that was not instituted in the Old Testament yet. The cross had not happened. And there's times when God did some devastating things to people. Because he does not like rebellion. He does not like disobedience. And he can destroy the entire planet. And he has every right to. He made it. He can destroy everything instantly right now. We better, part of our faith should be motivated by the fact that he is also the final judge that we're going to stand before someday. That we are going to stand before God. Now, if you belong to Jesus Christ, when he calls out your name at the great white throne of judgment, you've already been judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus will say, "Um, he's with me. She's with me. I got him. My blood covers them. But you're still going to stand there. Okay? And it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that you get rescued from the judgment to come. And we've got, there's got to be some kind of fear that starts in our heart with that. Lord, I'm not going to live my life the way that I want to. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not be flippant about your word and about obedience and about all this other stuff. I'm not going to be flippant. Why? Because you're the king and you're the ruler, and I'm not going to take that casually. You're the one that's in charge. You're the authority of everything. I always think about the scripture that says, the heavens is his seat and the earth is his footstool. And we go, wow, that's an amazing thing. But the, the imagery that always comes to my mind with that is that God is sitting there because he doesn't wear shoes. Why would God need to wear shoes? And so as the, the earth is his footstool. If he just got the tap in his toe, he could take us out. Just tap, just move your toe like that. North America gone. The imagery that he's saying is not just imagery. It's factual. It's factual. The heavens is his seat. God is big enough that he sits in the, and he covers the heavens. And he's big enough that the earth, he can prop his feet up on the earth. That's how big and majestic he is. We've got to see that. And this is part of what Noah is doing. Noah's faith is being motivated by, by obedience, which, which um, fear and respect are both intertwined in there. But that's part of it, Amy. Yes, he's his grandfather. Yeah. Oh, sure it was. Yeah, if you look how long they lived, Noah was alive for a couple hundred years while his grandfather was alive. Okay? Remember, you've you've heard me talk about this uh, time-wise. Um, Adam and Eve died either right about the time that Noah starts building the ark or right before that. Adam and Eve lived up until the time of either the generation before or the generation of Noah. I mean, you got to add that up and it's about 20 or 30 years different. There's potential that Adam and Eve were still alive when Noah was born. Do you understand the magnitude of that? Noah had first-hand verbalization of God by the only people ever to have seen and touched God in real time. In real life, visually, saw God. Not saw an afterglow of Him, not heard His voice in the wind or something. They saw God in person, talked with Him, walked with Him. And potentially, again, there's some timeline things that go on here. I, I talked about this a few weeks ago, a couple months ago. Adam was alive for a while before Eve came along. Adam hung out with God for a long time, potentially years. 
before Eve came along. And then Adam and Eve hung out together. It's not like God made Eve. The next day she goes out and says, oh, that's a nice piece of fruit. They, they, they were together for a while with God because it said that God came in, in the cool of the evening. God came to sit and talk with Adam and Eve like he always did. That says time. So then we see where it comes to Noah, Adam and Eve, at the, at the very least, would have died right before Noah was born. So that means his grandfather, Enoch, he knew Adam and Eve. For a long time, he knew Adam and Eve. Now, this is interesting because this actually comes back to what Aiden was talking about. What you're talking about there where Enoch said... Now, let's, let's put everything else we talked about Enoch just on the sidebar for him. Let's just take this. Enoch declared to everybody, you better be doing what God said. Right? Isn't that what Amy just read? You better be doing what God said. You better be following his laws. You better be doing. You better be obedient to God. This is the same person that said that Enoch's faith was trying to please God. So Enoch establishes for us that the balance in relationship and pleasing God is you better be obedient or you're not pleasing God. Because that was his message to everybody. His heart was trying to please God. His message was, you better do what he says. So in Enoch's mind, those were one and the same. Okay? So Noah, there's some obedience issues. There's some, um, there's some um, um, urgency. There's some fear. Uh, the coming judgment, those kind of things are going on. Okay? Uh, here's one. It's a little difficult for us. Make sure I got this right. Hold on. Okay, verse 17. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Okay, Abraham, who had received God's promises. What were God's promises? The the stars and sky, sand on the seashore kind of thing. Um, Uncountable. Basically. So that started with one person. Who was it? Isaac. God's promises were, at this point, at the time of the sacrifice of Isaac, God's promises had not been realized yet. God's promises were one word. Isaac. Right? It was going to be, and we see now where that plays down through history, and everything God said, even the promises to um, to uh, Hagar was, we've seen that too, right? God came, the the promises are different. God says to Abraham, through your descendants, you know, it will be too numerous to count, that they will cover the world, nations will be, uh, every nation will be affected, all this other kind of stuff is in that promise. Then Abraham does the thing where where, where Sarah, him and Sarah have a discussion, we don't know if it was Sarah's discussion or Abraham's or who convinced who, but Sarah brings her maid to Abraham and says, hey, have a child through her, and uh, that's where Ishmael comes from, right? And God promises Ishmael something. What is God's promise to Ishmael? It's not the same. It's different. Singular. You will become a great nation. Yes. Now think about that. You will be a great nation, singular, and your hand will be against every... You will be against humanity. Like fighting. So who are Ishmael's descendants? The Arabs. Boom, shakalaka. All right. So here's the deal. The, both of those came to pass exactly the way God said. Now let's back up because God says to Abraham, Abraham, you know, all these blessings, all this stuff, mighty nations, cover the whole earth, all this other stuff. And it's going to be through Isaac. And then Sarah, at 99 years old, has Isaac. Isaac's born. Isaac's a young man, 15, 20, I don't know, something like that. Um, some people think he was like 12, maybe. I don't think he was that young, but he could have been. So, um, but they, they go out, and uh, Isaac knows what's going on. He knows that something's not right, you know. You, you read the story, I'm sure, at different times, but he takes the wood, he takes all the stuff, and, and then so Isaac starts asking him, hey, Dad, uh, we don't have a lamb. It's all right. We don't need one. Why don't we need one? Right? You can tell Isaac's figuring this out. But Isaac doesn't take off running. In fact, it says that Abraham bound up Isaac's feet and wrists. How old is Abraham about this time? 115? 120? 
You're telling me Isaac can't take him? I would believe so. I would believe he is lamenting. This is breaking his heart. So he starts binding up Isaac's wrist. Isaac knows exactly what's happening now. You're the sacrifice, dude. So what does Isaac do? He just goes along with it. Okay, Dad, I trust you. I trust you. And again, Scripture says Abraham thought that Isaac would be rescued. No, no, no. That Isaac would be raised from the dead. That's what Scripture says. Abraham believed that once he killed Isaac, he'd be raised from the dead. So in, in Abraham's mind, in his heart... He's about to kill his son. And his faith is that God's going to raise him from the dead. But really his bigger faith is what? This is where it gets a little tricky. What's Abraham's really big picture of faith here? God's going to take care of whatever it is. I'm hoping he's going to raise him from the dead because in his mind he's going to kill him. I'm hoping he's going to raise him from the dead. But whatever it is, doesn't that sound a lot like the um, New Testament when Jesus says, uh, do you have faith? And the man says, I have faith. Now help me with my unbelief. Right? God, I, can do, I know you can do anything. Now help me believe it. Isn't that what he's saying? God, you can fix anything. Now help me believe it. You can take care of anything. Now help me believe it. When, a- when Abraham killed Isaac, he was doing, in his mind, his faith was, God, I'm just trusting you. I don't understand this. I don't like this. It doesn't make sense to me. You've promised all this stuff. If I kill him, the promise can't come true. So you're going to have to raise him from the dead for the promise to come true. I mean, all this stuff is going through his mind. And, and God was just saying, I got this. Just do what I've asked you to do, Abraham. And, and I, this is one of those moments in scripture you'd like to see it, right? Exactly what happens. Maybe it'd be one of these things. You know, except that almost hung me. Except that we know the end of the story, and so we know what's going to happen here. We know that God's going to take care of this, right? Yeah, kind of scared me there. Was so, um, but it's one of those things where you want to see it, but you don't want to see it. I, I, I did this years ago. I had a, I had a, well, I was about to say he was my youth pastor, but this was way before he was my youth pastor. He was a kid that grew up in our youth group and, um, and, and uh, went to college, went to Old Roberts University. While he was at Old Roberts University, he came to see us when we were in Colorado. About three or four years later, we hired him to be our youth pastor. But uh, he, was, he was like a freshman in college. He comes to see us, and he's sitting in the living room, and we had a bunch of mice in that house. This is a crazy old farmhouse I've talked about. We had a bunch of mice, and so we went and got a trap. And he put some peanut butter on the trap, and he set it over. There was a little hole where the mice was coming out in the wall. And he set it over by the wall, and then he sat there and watched it. And, uh, and then a mouse came out and started licking the peanut butter. And I, I couldn't watch it. I was like... I wanted to. And he literally, by the time the mouse actually was caught in the trap, he was doing this. Because he couldn't watch it. You think, oh, that's silly. I could watch it. Try it sometime. The idea of that trap springing, hitting that mouse, it's too overwhelming. Think about this. Could you actually watch Abraham's hand? Scripture says he raised his hand and the angel of the Lord stopped his hand. Raised his hand with the knife to kill his son. At that point, you're, you're shouting, come on, angel. Where are you, angel? And we know the story. Abraham didn't know the story yet. He still did this. Let me give you one more example. Let's go to, what time is it? Okay, I got enough time for this. It's a quick one. 1 Samuel chapter 20. I'll just, tell, I'll just say the story. We know the, we know the context. David, he's um, watching the, the, the sheep. Uh, his brothers are in the are in the in the army, and Goliath is going to be fighting, um, or is calling out the warriors. Right, so David comes down to give some bread and cheese to his brothers, and he hears Goliath come calling out the Israelite army, and so he decides that he's going to do something about this. Okay, his faith. The the end of the story is his faith leads him to kill Goliath, cut his head off, and chase his brothers down and the rest of the Philistine army. That's the end of the story. But what was the moment when David said, I'm going to do something about this? And why? Because that was a faith moment. He went to the river and picked up five stones. That was a faith moment. Okay? Why? Why did he go to the river and pick those stones up to attack Goliath? He wasn't picking on the soldiers. Well, he was, but David didn't care about that. 
What he cared about is how dare you pick on my God. And this is what I've been talking about the last few months, and this is where I want to leave it tonight with us, is sometimes I think our faith should be motivated by anger against what Satan is doing to people. That our faith should be motivated by just how dare, how dare you act like this in the face of a holy God. I'm not talking about people, although sometimes people, you know, get the credit for it. But really, Scripture says we're fighting against flesh and blood. So somewhere we should be irritated by how Satan is just picking apart the people of God. I was thinking about this again with the shooting of the Muslim mosque. And, you know, all these people are uproaring about this. I remember about six or seven years ago when they marched about 12, 15 Christians out onto a sandy beach and cut their heads off. It was interesting that the media didn't seem to be upset about that. They played the video, some of it, because it was interesting news, but they didn't seem to be upset about it. Nobody was calling for somebody to make this right. Nobody was calling for a head of state or a country, Saudi Arabia or Iran or somebody. Nobody was saying, you stop doing this. This is not okay. Why? Because they were Christians. And I'm not saying either one, both of them are wrong. We should be upset about the shooting of the mosque too. But it's interesting Nobody gets upset about that when it happens to the Christians. Guys, do you know how many Christians are martyred every single year? Just a kind of an, you know, a roundabout number. You know about how many Christians are martyred every single year? Close to 100,000. About 80-something thousand Christians are martyred every single year. In other words, they are killed for their belief and stance in Christ. Are you ever going to hear that on the news? No. Sometimes our faith should be motivated by how dare you act like this about my God. Not about you and your church or your Christianity. That's not what I'm talking about. Not about your moral systems or any of that kind of stuff. But when people just just shake their fist at God and say he's not real. He's not true. You guys know I watch a lot of um, video stuff. I watch a lot of teaching and different things like that. And there's a handful of, of basic uh, uh, nation-leading nation atheists out there. Some of them are already dead, but I still watch their stuff. And, and I pay attention to this stuff, and it irritates me every single time. And it also makes me feel sorry for them because someday they're going to be standing before God. And they're going to realize how stupid their arguments sounded. They already sound stupid to me, but they sound intelligent to some people. And how stupid that argument is going to be when you're standing before God. Sometimes our, our faith should be motivated by that. God, you're holy, and I'm tired of this. You're holy, and your word is just, and you are just, and your love is true, and your word is true, and I'm tired of this. Sometimes our faith should be motivated by that. All right, so let's pray. How do you think we should pray? How should we pray? That's a good start. With fear and reverence before our God. What about, what about with some of that Enoch mentality? Lord, how can I please you? I want to please you. I want to do what you want me to do. With just an idea that God is the one who created everything out of nothing. If he can do that, then he can do anything. Shouldn't there be some of that in our prayer mentality? We could go right down the line with this. So, obedience. That should be in there too. Let's pray. God, we thank you for you and your mercy and your grace. You are the king, Jesus. You are. We're not the king. Lord, you're the, you're the giver of grace. Lord, we are so humbled that we get to receive it. Lord, and you give us mercy too, and we deserve so much. Lord, I ask you to, to humble us before you. We want to be obedient. We want to have the fear of you in our hearts and our minds and our spirits. We want to know that you're the king. We want to know that there, is, that there is judgment someday. But Lord, we also have this beautiful thing that we get to live in right now called grace. Help us to respect it and see it. Lord, and I pray like Enoch, I want to please you, Lord. I want to please you. Lord, I want this church to be a place that pleases you. That our worship is a sweet fragrance to you. In the name of Jesus. So God, wash over us with your blood. Every one of us, wash Wash over us with your blood. In the name of Jesus, we pray. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Quick 20-second story I want to tell you before we go. I was teaching a class online today while I was driving to Denver to pick up my granddaughter. I'm teaching it on FaceTime, and it's about, um, has to do with, it's graduating seniors from the university in Texas, and, and, um, and I'm teaching them about interviewing and all this other stuff. I'm sitting there talking about it, and at one point I said, oh, well, I just, I, one of the things, I just interviewed somebody this last week for children's pastor of our church, and some guy in the back of the class said, um, how did she do? I could tell by his voice something went right. I said, is, is she in the room right now? And everybody started laughing. She was sitting off to the side. I just interviewed her last week, and now I'm telling everybody what you should and shouldn't do in an interview. And she's sitting in the classroom. So, all right. Have a rest of the rest of your evening. Go ahead and take it off. Take a nap before uh, breakfast, and we will see you guys uh, Sunday.